0: Okay, so this morning we're going to try to conclude our um, study on sanctification. So last week we spoke about sanctification and we noticed that it seems as though the New Testament speaks of sanctification in two ways. There's a definitive way in which we have been, past tense, sanctified perfectly in Christ Jesus. And yet there is also a way in which the Bible speaks of sanctification as something that is ongoing and continuing in us. That is, we are striving towards sanctification. As the book of Hebrews says, there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we are to strive toward that holiness. And so we, we wrestled with the way the Bible uses those two terms and concluded that there is, there's two senses in which we can talk about sanctification. Truly, definitively, Christ by His blood has perfected us. That is, in him we are not only justified and right before God, but truly we have been set apart from the world unto Christ by his blood. And this has truly initiated what we would call progressive sanctification. That is, the means by which or the act of God through which he continues to make us complete in Christ. So today, we're going to try to finish that study focusing primarily on that second part, the progressive sanctification of His people. And we're focusing on this because there's some errors that have historically been problematic, and I think even in our own lives, we tend to fall into these errors when we think about sanctification. And so, to start off with, I wanted to consider the Apostle John. Think about the Apostle John as the One whom Christ loved. The One who reclined at table with Christ and leaned on his, his breast as a friend. The Apostle who was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was with His ministry from beginning to end. From, um, from baptism all the way through. And yet, when we go to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, what does He say about indwelling sin? Should have been there already. But First John, in chapter 1, and starting in verse 8, he says this, and we've been here a few times recently. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. And we turn to this primarily because we think, if, there, if, there, if it was the case that sanctification could be truly, perfectly done, we would be done with sinning, perfectly holy before God, if anyone could say that, this apostle could say that, surely John would have reached some sort of higher level of Christian sanctification. And yet, that's not what he says. He says, if we think we are done sinning, we call him a liar and we ourselves are liars. That's not the truth. So how are we to think about indwelling sin within the Christian in our pursuit of holiness? This is ultimately going to bring us to Romans chapter 7, and that's where, we'll be, where we will be spending most of our time. But there's two, as just by way of introduction, there's sort of two errors that we can fall into in this. On one hand, there have been those who said, sanctification can be finally reached. There is a higher level of Christian living. You can finally get there where sinning is is done. It's all in the past. And you are now living this holy life to God. But what does that actually lead to? If John is right when he says indwelling sin is never done in this life, and yet there are people who think it is done, what ultimately is that? Well, it's, it's sayism. It's the sense in which you think Sin is merely the external things which we do. I can keep my hand from murdering. I can keep my lips from speaking lies, I would think. And yet, have I really seen the sinfulness of my own heart before God? This is to say, when you look at the law of God, you can see it as a a mere matter of externals where God has said, do not murder. And you think, I have not killed anyone. But what does Christ say on the Sermon on the Mount? He says, what, if you hate your brother, you have already murdered him in your heart. Likewise, we think of adultery or these things. You can say, I I haven't done such and such with so and so, but truly, where is my heart before God? Have I not been sinning against God in my heart? This is to ask what Paul asks in Galatians 4.21 when he says, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear what the law says? That is, The law of God, being righteous and holy, is meant to say something to you. But it's not meant to say what the Pharisees thought it said. The Pharisees thought the law of God said to them, here is the right, you can do it. Here is the way to God. You merely need to be as as the law requires. But Paul is saying that's not what the law is meant to say. The law was meant to put before you what was a path to life, but to you, who are in sin and in the flesh, it is death. It is impossible. It is a high standard to which no one measures up to. Do you not hear what the law says? And so, in Pharisaism, we have one aspect where we are misunderstanding the law of God. The other side of it, though, is the idea of perfectionism. This is the idea where we say, well, sanctification, at least should be, the Christian life should be perfect, and yet I never reach it. I should be not sinning, and yet here I am. And what this can lead to is when we look at that and we say, well, maybe I haven't really attained Christianity. I see sin in my members, and apparently I just haven't found the secret to the Christian life. I'm sinning, and this is purely contradiction. And that can lead to despair and doubt. But really, what is the root of this? It's actually very similar. The idea is, I look at God's law, and I see it as that which I am supposed to measure up to, and I don't. Therefore, what is my standing before God? Questionable. I don't know. Every time I look at what my hands do and what my mind thinks and what my heart feels and where my feet go, I think my standing before God is it's in question. I don't know. But what are we asking ourselves that? We're asking, is my standing before God based on what I do? Am I measuring up to what God has required of me? In other words, it's very much the same thing. It's looking at our own life and our own standing before God based on the flesh, based on what is me. But this is not what sanctification is is saying to us. Sanctification in God certainly is a pursuit of holiness and certainly is a love for God's law as good and righteous and holy. But sanctification that looks merely at the flesh, that looks at what I do, that is constantly measuring myself by God's law as something that must be kept rather than God's law as something that has been kept for me, this is to walk by the flesh. And so what we're going to get to in Romans 8 is where Paul says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. This is Romans 8, verse 6. And we're going we're to come back and circle around to that and try to draw that out to what is actually meant by those words. But this is the paradigm we're dealing with. Another way to think about perfectionism then also is to say... <clears throat> Well, if, uh, oh, I'm sorry, back up, not perfectionism, I misspoke. So, hold that thought. Having looked at perfectionism and Pharisaism as two pitfalls, and seeing that God has called us to sanctification, to holiness, but in a way that is not by the flesh, but which is by the Spirit, we must ask, okay, what is the nature of this sanctification, and we're, gonna, we're about to jump into Romans 7 because this really is where um, the, the matter is unfolded very fully for us. But I, I would ask you just to think for a moment, and if you have verses come to mind, please, please say them. But when you think about the New Testament and the way the writers of the New Testament describe the Christian life and our fight against sin, how do they describe it? There's, there's one idea of thought which says the struggle is the problem. You need to let go and let God. Sit back and let God do all the sanctifying in you, and you are along for the ride. But how does Paul talk about this? Does he not say, fight the good fight? Or does he say, put off sin and death? Or you have been crucified, therefore crucify yourselves To sin, you have been crucified with Christ. There's a true struggle, a true fight, a true battle. And so we must reckon with the idea that in this life, as we continue to fight against sin, we're not going to look at God's law and say, well, since I cannot measure up to it, I might as well sin that grace may abound. No. How can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? So, we come to the fact to realize that there is true contradiction in our lives in Christ. That is to say, while Christ has perfectly made us right with Him, and while we are truly sanctified by the blood of Christ, we know that in this life, there is always a tension now. Because what God has truly made us, we are not truly perfect yet until glory. This is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7. So, as we look there, I'm going to read a short section and then we're going to back up to the beginning of the chapter so that we get the sense of where Paul is coming from. But in Romans chapter 7, he says in verse 16, Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so we see, at least at a surface level, as we dip our toe into this passage, Paul understands his Christian life to be one of struggle and contradiction in many ways. That there is two truths at work. One, Christ truly has sanctified him, and he knows, he delights in the law of God, and yet, at work within him, every time he sets his mind on what is right, evil lies close at hand. And so, in this contradiction, we understand that God is perfecting his children he is bringing us to sanctification. Remember, last week we were in chapter 16, I'm sorry, chapter 6 of Romans, and it was talking about this. So if we were to back up and remember that context, in Romans chapter 6, verse 20, it says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? That is, what Being free from righteousness, what did you actually get? For the end of such things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he goes on into chapter 7. But this is the paradigm, this last verse, Romans 6.23, a very familiar verse to all of us, for the wages of sin is death. I think most of our children here probably know this verse, right? The wages of sin is death. So listen, listen to me youngsters, right? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I was reflecting on this yesterday. What are wages? Teddy, do you know what wages are? No. Do you know what wages are, William? No. How about pay? Do you know what pay is? If you do work, you, owe, you are owed something? Right? Your daddy goes to work and he gets wages. He gets wages. If you do something or if your dad gives you a chore, and he says, Do this, and I will give you a dollar or five dollars. Those are wages. There's something that's due for what you have done. And it's interesting. If you look at this, Paul is intentionally using a term, wages. He's not just saying the punishment for sin is death, though that's true. The punishment for sin is death. But these are wages. That is to say, what is due? What is the arrangement between you and God for sin? What is due is death. That is, if what you do is wrong, what your just payment is, your just wages, is death. And then when he moves on, he says, but the free gift. Now, what is a gift? Do you know what a gift is, William? Is it something that you worked hard to get, or did you just get it under the Christmas tree? You just got it, right? Right, Teddy? It's just a gift. You didn't do anything for it. God gave it to you. So when Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, he's saying what God is giving you is no longer wages. It's not what's due to you. Why? Because you do what earns death. We know what you are owed. You are supposed to be given death. So when God gives you life, it's a gift. It's not something you earned. So do you see how Paul shifts the thinking here? That is to say, he is moving us from a framework of thinking about what am I due, meaning what is due to me, what is right for God to give me, based on the legal arrangement of the law. And he's shifting your mind away from that onto what has Christ given me freely. What is his gift to me. How does he work this out then? Okay. Chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Okay, so this is going to get a little bit complicated. I'll do my best. <laughs> for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And then, so this is an analogy. The next part, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has raised him from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And in order to not get too far afield from our focus of sanctification, Paul is merely saying that God, as it were, by analogy, had his people married to the law. The law was, as it were, a husband. There are, in a sense, two husbands here. There is the husband of Christ Jesus, and there is the husband of the law as a written code. And Paul says, if you are married to the law, what does the law demand? That's the question. But if you're married to Christ, the question is not anymore what is demanded, but what is done. In other words, the law as a husband says, do right. But, the law, but Christ as a husband says, I have done right. I have done right. This is the same paradigm. He's trying to switch us from what is due to what it, Christ has truly done on your behalf. And this is what theologians have called evangelical obedience or obedience to the gospel. That is, an obedience which is of faith. An obedience which is not merely taking steps because I owe to God certain things which will give me standing before God. Or my favor with God is still conditional on what I do, therefore I do this in order to earn favor or to measure up. Rather, this is an obedience which is purely motivated by thankfulness by what Christ has done for us. That is, if Christ truly has done the law and it really is complete on my behalf and the free gift of God really is mine, a full and free gift, then we have been released from the flesh to always be looking at our members and looking at the law of God as, how am I doing? Is God looking on me favorably because I'm doing something good? Am I looking at God's law as something by which I judge myself. Paul says, no. If you set your mind on the things of the flesh of what I am doing, it leads to death. But if you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, what does he mean by that? What does the Spirit do? The Spirit is that which gives us the things of Christ. The Spirit is what comes and puts the saving knowledge of God and the love for God's law in our hearts. Remember, he says, the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. The idea being, the written code stands outside of me, it's written, and it stands and overshadows me and condemns me. But the new way that Paul is talking about here, the Spirit has written a love for God's law on my heart. Why do I love God's law? Because Christ kept God's law for me. He is the perfect husband who does perfectly. If I love Jesus, I love what He does. And if I love what He does, I love the law of God. But I'm free to love that law because that law is no longer the thing which stands apart from me and overshadows me and tells me that my standing with God is based on what I do. The law of God is now that which I look at and see the perfection of Christ in. And I want to be like my Savior. So, as it comes to sanctification, that is, a pursuit of holiness. The reason why we labor of this is because the whole context that Paul is talking about, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, as he brings us to this point of contradiction, which we read in chapter 7, where it says the things I want to do, I do not do, yet the things that I do, do, seem to come from not me, but from sin, and he's wrestling with this. The, um, The means of sanctification, then, is what we would call gospel obedience. It is obeying from a right understanding of the gospel. And how does this work out for Paul? Well, he says, look, notice how he, this is, this is a, um, a conscious identity battle for Paul. That's, that is, who am I truly? When I sin, how am I to understand myself? Because I, I can look at myself and I say, I sin, therefore I see myself as condemned. Or I can look at myself and I sin, and how does he think about himself? Um, starting in verse 15 of chapter 7. Okay. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. There's that contradiction. But how is he going to understand this? Now if I do what I do not want, what? I agree with the law that it is good. In other words, if I'm convicted of sin, if I look at myself and I say, I'm doing wrong, what does that show? That shows that I love God's law because I know it's sin. Someone who hates God's law and despises it doesn't look at sin and say, wow, that's sinful. They say no big deal, right? So Paul says, first off, I agree with the law. The law is good. So now, what does he do then? It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul seems to say, it's now appropriate to realize that I can divorce myself, who I am in Christ, from who I, who, what sin is in me. There's, a, there's, a, um, there's an identity here which Paul is shifting us into. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. In other words, what Paul wants us to see is that there is a true change that Christ has made in us. And there's a true sense in which we are Christ's. We are God's. And so he can divorce himself from his sin. He can look at his sin and he say, that's not truly the me that Christ has made. I am Christ's. I am in Christ. Therefore, the sin which I do is not mine. See, what he's doing is not saying I'm no longer culpable for my sin. He's not saying I have no, um, I have no, um, the sin has no bearing on me anymore. Truly, he understands it to be sin. He hates that he sins. And he, this is not that. What this is is, teaching us how to regard ourselves according to the Spirit or to set our minds in the things of the Spirit. What has Christ done? So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through, through of God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, this is admittedly a difficult passage to wrap our minds around to wholly. But one thing that I want to say is to guard us from a particular reading of this, which is to say, well, maybe God just sanctifies our minds, and it's all of our our hands and our feet and our body which aren't sanctified. Maybe that's what Paul means when he says, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, I I think if we were to compare this with, um, with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as we wrap up here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We would understand or realize that Paul doesn't have this kind of view of sanctification. Um, 5 verses 28, or sorry, 23 is where we're headed. He says, this is his prayer for the Thessalonians as he's closing out this letter, and he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul, and body, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. So, what is he praying for? He's praying for a complete sanctification at the coming of Christ. And he's saying, Christ will surely do it. And is this a sanctification merely of the mind, or of the soul, or of the body? No, it's, it's all of these things. Christ is perfecting all of these things. So when we look at, when we look at Romans chapter 7, we need to realize that when he contrasts the mind, serving the law of God with his mind, but serving the law of sin with his flesh, he's talking about this difference between serving the law as, the, um, as that which stands and condemns me versus serving Christ as that which has purchased me and has kept that law for me. In other words, I can, I can worship God truly in my mind knowing that the law is good and righteous and I can live knowing that there is true contradiction in me, knowing that I still sin, but knowing that I have what John says, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That is, there is repentance and forgiveness in the Christian life, not perfection and not Phariseeism. I hope that was a little helpful. Um, so to, to sum it up then, we want to say this. Sanctification is a progressive act of God, and yet by the Spirit, He works in us so that we truly do strive to do what we ought to do. We fight for not only faith, but for holiness. The agent of this is our strength in the Spirit. that is our understanding of Christ's work in us. And this growth then is what we would call a growth in grace, a growth out of the grace of Christ in us. And if we were to read how this was then confessed as a um, as a whole package to try to summarize all of what the Bible has said on sanctification, we could read these final two chapters in this. Um, I'm far- sorry, the final two paragraphs in chapter thirteen. Of the Baptist Confession. And it would summarize this, hopefully, along the lines of what you've seen from God's Word. Talking about the sanctification that is progressive, then it says, This sanctification is throughout the whole man. Yet it is imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence ariseth a continual, irre- irre- irreconcilable war. The flesh lusting against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life and evangelical obedience to all the commands which, which Christ as head and king in his word hath prescribed to them. This is merely trying to summarize then what we have said, that God has taken about to perfect his people, and so in this there is an irreconcilable war, as long as we are on earth, between the flesh and the spirit. And though there may be times when the flesh truly does succeed, as Paul says, the thing I wish I did not do, that's what I do. There's times when the flesh succeeds. Nevertheless, God has promised that he will sanctify us and continue us forward into holiness until the end. If that wasn't too confusing, are there any questions or thoughts? Okay, I'll close with prayer. Heavenly Father, um, I ask that this would have, that this is um, helpful to your people. I um, thank you for your kindness towards us and towards me as I um, struggle to to make plain what is sometimes difficult to simplify. I pray that we would pursue holiness, but not in a way that is. Um, in any way to diminish the perfection of your righteous law, nor in any way to condemn our hearts before God when you have truly justified us and declared us righteous. So may we not fall into despair and may we not be Pharisees, but truly press on in hope, making the grace of God full and complete to us in the Spirit. And we ask that you would work this in our lives. Pray for us now as we go forward and worship together. Um, Deal kindly with us, I pray, in your name. Amen.